so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders once again here on the America Out Loud Network. And man, I'm glad you're here. I am happy that uh, we have a chance to to share some information, you know, get to get some truth out there. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of competing voices, right? Tons of them. They're everywhere. How, how do you know which voices you can trust? Is it one of those things where it's just a matter of, hey, well, you know, I've got some experience here. I've got, you know, I've, I've got uh, some long-term uh, relationship that has shown me that I can trust this person year in and year out. They don't uh, fill me full of smoke or, you know, anyway, you get the idea. So you're taking a risk sometimes, but I'm, I'm telling you when it comes to, to knowing what not to believe, it's, it's really hard not to just reflexively say, well, did it come from a government official? Did it come through mass media? And if the answer is yes, well, I would say probably don't believe it because <laughs> there's so much misinformation. I want to give you an example of this. There's an excellent article by Cheryl K. Chumley. This is published in the Washington Times. And it's titled Joe Rogan versus Anthony Fauci. And I think it illustrates this this disconnect that we're seeing with the American public and knowing, well, who can we trust? In fact, right now, it's not just a matter of, well, you know, you can trust Dr. Fauci. After all, he's a medical degree and he's a man of some experience, 80 years old plus, and he just knows what he's talking about. Very persuasive. His principles are rock solid. You don't hear those kind of things. It's more of kind of a cult of personality. Oh, Dr. Fauci is speaking. Oh, sorry, I had to bow my head. In the meantime, Joe Rogan, who has the most listened to podcast in history, he still is, uh, I think, a credible person. Now, let's let's break this down. Cheryl Chumley, I think, does does a marvelous job of of pointing out the difference in approach between what Joe Rogan is saying versus what Dr. Fauci is saying. But one of them inspires confidence in me. The other one does not. She says, when it comes to taking advice on coronavirus mitigation, the American people would do far better to listen to comedian and podcaster Joe Rogan than National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director Dr. Anthony Fauci. Why? Because Rogan has common sense. Fauci is a power monger and media whore whose flip-flopping scientific advisements are A, hardly scientific at all, and B, oddly targeted toward clamping freedoms on those of conservative persuasion, but not liberal. In other words, more non-science. Rogan said, if someone has an ideological or physiological reason for not getting vaccinated, 
Then he says, I don't want to force them to get vaccinated to see a effing stupid comedy show. Now they say that everybody has to be vaccinated. Well, he says, I want everybody to know you can get your money back. This is on the heels of refunding ticket costs to his fans who didn't want to obey New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio's command, get vaccinated as a condition of entering places of entertainment. That's a pretty stand-up move, I think, on the part of Joe Rogan. I mean, he could he could be making bank, but instead he's refunding their their admission. And I'm glad he's not bowing, you know, to to de Blasio either. But then this is why Rogan, to, to my thinking, is actually a more uh, credible source of information because he's consistent in his in his principles. Fauci, in the meantime is out and about insisting on the need, surprise, for a third shot. Oh, and by the way, guess what? Little kids going to school should get vaccinated too. Should? Wait. Make that must. Now, Fauci's words on CNN's State of the Union on Sunday, quote, I believe that mandating vaccines for children to appear in school is a good idea. We've done this for decades and decades, requiring polio, measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis, So this would not be something new requiring vaccinations for children to come to school. End quote. Now that's a different song than Fauci was singing in May when the good doctor's view was this. I'm not so sure we should be requiring children at all. We should be encouraging them. Now he also at the time assured hesitant parents, don't worry about it. The vaccine's been around for almost a year and it's presented no long-term effects that anyone could notice. What a hoot. Now, Cheryl Chumley says, how could anyone notice long-term effects when the vaccine's only been around at the time that he made those remarks for about a year? Shh. This is the same Fauci that one time said not to wear a face mask, only to later advise wearing a face mask, only to later advise wearing two face masks, only to later advise goggles and eye shields, only to later change his tone and verbiage from that of advisory to one of mandatory. Theoretically, Fauci said in July 2020, you should protect all mucosal surfaces. So if you have goggles or an eye shield, you should use it. Theoretically, Fauci's not an elected official, sworn by office to protect and uphold the limits of government provisions of the Constitution, along with the concept of individualism, not collectivism, that marks American politics and culture. But on that, it's theory schmeary, Fauci says, so Americans must do, or so go the messages in the media and from big government mouths. Now, she points out Rogan, on the other hand, has been pretty consistent with his calls for self-determination. Joe Rogan said, I'm not an anti-vac person earlier this year. In fact, he says, I said I believe the vaccines are safe. I encourage many people to take them. I just said that if you're young, if you're a young, healthy person, you don't need it. Now, Rogan also criticized the government pharmaceutical industrial complex for moving one step closer to dictatorship on the whole coronavirus clampdown, vaccine mandate, vaccine passport, technological contact tracing movement that's sweeping the nation, nay, the globe. Rogan railed earlier this month, you can't enter New York City unless you have your papers. You can't go here unless you have that. You can't get on a plane unless you do what I say. And in Fauci's world, the response to that is, so? Which is to say, in Fauci's world, the underlying but prevailing attitude is, we know best. Cheryl K. Chumley says these are dangerous times for America because the face-off is coming. Individualism versus collectivism. 
In fact, she says truly the face-off is here. In one corner stands Rogan, waving a banner emblazoned with the words independent thinking. In the other stands Fauci, flapping a flag that blares the single word obey. Cheryl K. Chumley Chumley says if the vaccines work, if the face masks work, if the science is what scientists have been saying for the past year plus, what do the face masking and vaccinated have to fear? And if they don't work, meaning if they don't put a stop to the spread of the coronavirus and the variants, which truly is what the data show, then the bureaucrats need to stop lying. Americans aren't lab rats. American children aren't guinea pigs. American citizens are thinking, rational, independent individuals with the God-given right to guide their own health care choices, as well as those for their children. She says, Rogan is right. Following Fauci, especially blindly, is folly. It's time for more American citizens to stand up and say, enough is enough. Freedom and individualism are far too precious to let go to lifelong bureaucrats and their friends in the global community. In fact, she says the knockout round for God-given cannot come from the likes of a coronavirus. This is Cheryl K. Chumley writing for the Washington Times dot com. Dang. She's pretty direct, but but I kind of like that. In fact, uh, to me, that's the strength of her message. Which brings us back to the idea. So who would you trust more? Joe Rogan or Anthony Fauci? And I know the answer could be, well, it depends on what advice. If I'm asking, hey, how do I get rid of this fungus on my foot? You know, Dr. Fauci may be able to recommend, you know, an antifungal cream. On the other hand, you know, Joe Rogan's also spent a lot of time on the mats as an MMA fighter. Um, Probably encountered a fungus or two, but it happens. Maybe he could recommend one as well. It's just this idea that we know best. What we're doing is we're doing a favor for you by imposing these things on you that you cannot resist. And I just, I can't abide that kind of thinking. Not just because I have to have it my way, because, you know, I'm the most important thing in the universe. It, you know, the people who are very pro, get the vaccine, get it, mandate it. They look at that as an affront. You are so selfish. How could you be so selfish to put people at risk by not doing your part to help mitigate a deadly disease? And the answer, at least for me, is you haven't convinced me. You haven't convinced me that it, first of all, is necessary. You haven't convinced me that uh, the remedy that is being offered is safe. And you certainly haven't convinced me that this is something that I'm free to say no thank you to. Instead, what you've done is you've ramped up the pressure and tried to make everything possible in my life a checkpoint through which I must pass only by complying with this vaccine mandate. Look at all the different areas of life, you know, and it's and it's being done with the help of big business, private businesses getting on board. Now, some of them probably believe they're doing the right thing. Maybe they just want to err on the side of safety. I can almost understand that. But it doesn't change the fact it still has to be my choice. What did I see today? There was a news headline. Um, you know, nurses are being offered huge amounts of money. You know, there's incredible financial incentives. Come work as a nurse. Now, the simple laws of supply and demand would indicate, wow, if they are willing to pay this much to attract nurses to come and work at this place or that place, 
that tells us that uh, there is a short supply of qualified nurses. How long ago was it? Just a couple weeks ago? 150 nurses fired from Methodist Hospital in Houston. Why? Because they wouldn't get the jab. So, gee, I wonder if that uh, great opportunity for nurses is coming because of an artificial shortage in nurses created because, you guessed it, somebody flexed and decided we have to make this mandatory. I heard some people say at the time, and and I wondered about this myself, what if enough nurses just put their foot down and said, nope, we'll walk out, we'll quit? I think they were wise actually to make the Companies fire them because now they at least qualify for unemployment. But it's just crazy to see the the amount of pressure that's being brought to bear. And I believe that we are we are facing that that uh, the conflict is going to come to a head. The individual versus the collective. Somebody is going to push, and I don't know how it's going to shake out, but I don't think it's going to be a very pleasant thing. Nonetheless. I'm grateful for those who are standing up. And I'm grateful for those who sounded the warning from the very beginning. In fact, let me take a moment here and just kind of toot the horn of uh, Michael Snyder. I have read his work regularly on lewrockwell.com. And Michael Snyder has been a very consistent voice in warning about some of the dangers that we're approaching. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, we, we should have done everything he said. I'm just saying he was very consistent in saying, hey, pay attention to this. This could lead to trouble. In fact, he gives some examples here. He says, if only George Orwell could see what we have become. Michael Snyder says, today I'm writing this article in the midst of a very deep state of sadness. He says, in fact, I have to admit, I haven't been this sad in a very long time. In fact, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to complete this article. What they are doing, they being the power seekers and opportunists, what they are doing to this country that I love is really starting to get me, to get to me emotionally. He says, America is supposed to be a beacon of liberty and freedom for the entire world. But now we are on the cutting edge of the global trend toward authoritarianism. He says, I know a lot of people have been leaving the United States in recent years in an attempt to escape the madness. But at this point, we see authoritarianism on the rise just about everywhere. Just look at New Zealand. Look at Australia. Look at the Philippines. At one time, people were fleeing to those countries but now they become some of the most authoritarian regimes of all. And he says, I feel so frustrated because I feel like I've been banging my head against a brick wall. Over the past decade, Michael Snyder says, I have written countless articles warning that we were losing our liberties and freedoms. And very large numbers of people all over the globe read these articles. But did they do any good? He says, here are just a few examples of what I'm talking about. He had articles written about uh, thoughts on the new normal and the things we are losing as a society. And without freedom of speech, what is going to happen to America? Here's another article, Less Government, More Freedom. Or, The Police State is Coming for Religious Extremists, Evangelical Christians, Pro-Life Activists, and Libertarians. Or, 12 Signs that Americans Who Love Liberty and Freedom Should Watch Their Backs. I've read his stuff for a long time, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, Michael Snyder, if somebody's earned the right to say, I told you so, this is probably the guy. But I'm not sure that's what he's doing here. What he is saying is he says, I warned that this day was coming, and now it's here. 
And he says, for a while, they, by which he means the power seekers and opportunists who run the systems that seek to rule our lives, they were content to whittle away our liberties and freedoms on the periphery. But now we are facing a full-fledged frontal assault on our most basic liberties and freedoms. And he says, what makes it even more frightening is the fact that millions of completely brainwashed Americans are cheering them on as they do it. If our founders could see us today, they would be absolutely horrified at what we have become. And he says, because I'm so often critical of what's happened to us, a lot of people out there assume, you must hate this country. But he says, of course, that's not true at all. He says, I deeply love America. I deeply love our history. I deeply love our traditions. And I deeply love the values that this nation is supposed to represent. And he says, that's why it deeply grieves me that these things are being ripped away from us. And this next line, this one kind of set me back in my chair. Michael Snyder writes, we are the generation that is witnessing the end of America. For whatever period of time the political entity known as the United States is allowed to continue, it won't be America anymore. Sure, the U.S. Constitution will still be on public display somewhere and politicians will still pay lip service to it. But for all practical purposes, the dream of what America was supposed to be will be dead. Sometimes people say that we have too many complainers, not enough people taking action. But he says, I am one of those people that did try to take action. I spent nearly an entire year of my life running for office and me and my campaign manager traveled thousands upon thousands of miles so that we could personally talk to as many voters as possible. He says, everywhere I went, I warned that unless emergency action was taken, there wasn't going to be a future for America. I begged. I pleaded. I delivered passionate speech after passionate speech, but in the end, it wasn't good enough. Why can't we have extremely passionate politicians that have fire in their bellies? He says, you know, why aren't the liberty, why aren't the liberty-loving members of Congress speaking up? Now, Rand Paul has chosen to make a bold stand, but where in the world is everyone else? He says, I'm so sick of these do-nothing politicians standing aside as our republic is literally being destroyed. Now, a lot of people out there think that the changes we're witnessing are just temporary. They think that eventually this panic, or this pandemic rather, will fade away and everything will just return to normal somehow. But what they don't realize is that the elite will always find another excuse to move even further down the road toward authoritarianism. Two decades ago, it was 9-11. Then it was the war on terror, which now has evolved into the war on domestic extremism. And for the past couple of years, the pandemic has given them the cover that they needed to greatly accelerate their program. The federal government in 2021 is working hand-in-hand with big corporations and mainstream media to advance the Big Brother agenda. And Michael Snyder says at this point, things have gotten so bad that we can't even criticize certain specific points of their agenda anymore because if we do, we get immediately censored. For a long time, the Internet allowed ordinary citizens like you and me to communicate on a mass scale outside of their control. But now those days are over because they, again, the power seekers and opportunists, are clamping down really hard. Just like in George Orwell's novel, they want to control what we say, what we think, what we believe, and what we feel. 
Having independent opinion is dangerous. Thinking for yourself is dangerous. He says we've literally become a 1984 society. And most Americans are just standing by watching it happen. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but what he's saying here is what he's been saying for years. If we stay on our current course, there is no future for America. Even Joe Rogan is using the word dictatorship to describe the direction that our country is headed. Many are putting their heads into the sand and assuming that our system will correct itself eventually. But every single day, things are getting even worse. And so he says, if you love liberty, now is the time to stand up and say something. Time is rapidly running out, and authoritarianism is on the march. Now, Michael Snyder cuts some pretty good credibility with me. I think, I think the guy is legit. And I think he's right about the fact that waiting for this to fix itself eventually is waiting for something that's never going to happen. And there is historical precedent. Maybe you've heard me speak of Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945. What Milton Meyer did was he went back after World War II and interviewed people who had lived through that experience. Common German citizens, you know, university professors. He talked to all types of Germans to get from their perspective, what was it like watching that transformation from 1933 to 1945? And the funny thing is, for most of them, they were not, you know, zealot political, you know, operatives. They weren't, you know, dying to join the Nazi party and to, you know, follow the Fuhrer's grand vision of a thousand-year Reich. No. They were just people working and getting by, and some of them very early on started to recognize, you know, that doesn't look right, or this is taking us in a weird direction. But too many people didn't want to be the one to speak up. They didn't want to be the one who was saying, hey, this seems like it's a bad direction to go, or this seems like something I can't support. And so they waited. Well, there's going to come something, you know. Hitler and those Nazis, they're going to do something, and it's going to shock everybody, and they're going to come awake and realize, oh, this has been a big mistake. Let's get him out of office and, you know, get back to normal. But that great shock never comes. And that is the great lesson of what Milton Meyer learned from the common German citizen. The change came incrementally. It came on cat's feet, little by little. And every time you failed to protest something that had happened, you just gave the precedent that, well, it must not have been that bad. You didn't say anything. And so it is with us. Now, I know it's, that's a painful thought for some people. Some people will take umbrage at the idea, how dare you compare what's happening in America to anything the Nazis did. So I'll double down and tell you what's happening is uh, not only on a trajectory to make it as bad, but because of the technology that is now available, because of the aspects that uh, the people in power can use to get into the lives of people, I think it could be much worse. I mean, we're, we're looking at something probably more like if the French Revolution and uh, Mao's cultural revolution had a baby. That's, uh, that's the kind of thing that I feel like we are looking at. I'm sorry, I wish, I wish that were you know, better news. I wish I could tell you something that uh, was warm and fuzzy and would make you feel good. But to pretend that it's not taking place, to pretend that, well, it could never really get that bad, 
I think a lot of people think that way because they think, well, I don't want to have to take a stand. It's, it's risky today. Cancel culture is real. Doesn't take much to gin up a mob. You don't even have to have said something today. All you have to do is say something that uh, they can look back, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Well, did you say this? Well, nobody would say that in his right mind today, and the mob can punish you. You know, I can't help you with the idea that it is risky to speak up. You may draw attention from the government. You may draw attention from other people. Polite society may shun you. But if you're not willing to suffer for your beliefs, maybe you should ask yourself, you know, just how deep your beliefs are in the first place. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have a, an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's Immune Super Boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the immune super boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD, and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. The America Out Loud family is comprised of patriots in the true sense of the word. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty and the Constitution to help save America for future generations to come. AmericaOutloud.com It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. And this is the America Out Loud Network. Pay attention to the sponsors of this program. Give them your business if you have need of their their product or service or maybe refer somebody who does need that. You could even just reach out to them and let them know I heard your message because you were tuned in on America Out Loud. Well, where to go from here? I shared with you the article from Michael Snyder in the last segment. I want to share with you another article from uh, William Sullivan. And I, I want to do this because right now there's a lot of talk about vaccine passports and, you know, vaccine mandates and so forth. And I know that it's easy to get uh, caught up in, you know, the battles of, well, you're imposing your liberty on somebody else. I think it was uh, Utah Senator Mitt Romney who uh, made some comment about, well, people are saying that they want to exercise their liberty, but... What about when your liberty affects my health? I guess he's not heard of a thing known as, uh, you know, probable cause. <laughs> that, that you gotta, If you're going to punish somebody, even if you're going to do it preemptively, you really should probably give them some kind of due process before you start taking away rights and limiting freedoms. I guess that's not how it works, though, in, in the halls of power. 
And what's at stake here isn't just a matter of, well, you're not doing your part. You're being selfish and you're allowing people to get sick. Don't be manipulated by that kind of guilt slinging. Anytime you are dealing with weaponized guilt, that is someone seeking to obtain more power over you. Now, that's not an excuse for, you know, if you've done something legitimately wrong, own up to it, make it right, and then move on. So this isn't about ducking responsibility for actual harms or actual things we may have done wrong. But don't let people guilt you into doing things that go against your conscience. And, and here's the thing. When it comes to the vaccine passports, when it comes to people being able to work because they took the vaccine or not being able to travel because they don't have the vaccine or whatever it may be, what we're witnessing is the concept of informed consent being turned on its head and becoming coercion of the uninformed. Why does informed consent matter? Why is that the basis of ethics when it comes to medicine? I want to turn to an article here from William Sullivan. This was published on American Thinker. And he says, There must be a lot of money to be made in peddling medical treatments and prescription drugs to Americans, or there would be no way the advertisements pitching these drugs and treatments uh, to the public could be so plentiful they do they they spend a lot of money on advertising but he says you may have noticed a feature of those ads that's conspicuously absent in the public pitch for covid for covid19 vaccines he says let's consider that commercial or any of the hundreds exactly like it in treating you to get vaxxed as a means to get back to life showing happy images of travel passports college family meals and visiting grandparents But we're assured it's okay to have questions like, how were the vaccines tested? Why should I get vaccinated? Well, how were they tested in rigorous trials? I'm sorry, in rigorous clinical trials among adults of diverse backgrounds, we're assured. Oh, well, that's a relief. Why should I get vaccinated? Because protecting yourself also helps protect the people around you. You don't say I hadn't heard that. Back to life, the commercial ends. It's up to you. Now, he says there are two things that the average American might notice here. The first is that this commercial, just like every COVID vaccine pitch ever created, treats us, the skeptical yet potential consumer, like a child being persuaded by a desperate parent to believe that Santa really showed up on Christmas Eve. I saw him on the Santa Tracker app. Honest. The second is the absence of all that fine print disclosure that commonly appears at the bottom of most American drug commercials, accompanied by a swift recitation of the most horrifying potential side effects in a pleasant voice. And curiously, after not being reminded that there are potential side effects to the COVID vaccines or what those side effects are, we're also not reminded that we should talk to our doctor before deciding to take this new drug. See, as it turns out, there's a reason all those American drug manufacturers and their pitchmen have always put those uncomfortable disclosures in their commercials. And it's not because they're really bad salespeople or because they love being the subject of countless parodies for presenting side effects that are often worse than the cure they promise. Nope. It's thanks in part to this little nuisance of a concept called informed consent. He says informed consent to medical treatment, according to the American Medical Association, is fundamental to both ethics and law. Patients have a right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so they can make well-considered decisions about their care. Now, pharmaceutical companies peddling their wares in America 
almost uniquely in the global context, are able to market prescription drugs directly to potential patients. And because of this, the Food and Drug Administration seeks to keep the the drug peddlers honest, believing this to be part of the process by which potential patients are informed, and thereby requiring them to present the negative effects of any medical treatment alongside potential benefits. Now, the other reason is personal injury lawyers who will scour every advertisement a drug company puts out to find a client that experiences some negative impact as a result of an undisclosed side effect. But that's another story. In sum, that appears to be why COVID vaccine commercials don't include side effects to inform the public about any potentially negative side effects. It's a loophole. They don't disclose the details because they're not marketing a specific brand of the product to the public. It's just a public service announcement that, coincidentally, I'm sure, does what the pitchmen of Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, or Moderna couldn't legally do as a matter of consumer protection. And that is, pitch their products by promising all of that vague upside without presenting any of the potentially negative side effects. So the advertisements for the COVID vaccine are neither informative nor balanced, despite being presented as such. And even more sinister than that, they seem to offer the false proposition of our being given a choice in taking the jab. It's not a very convincing pretense, to be fair. Even the language in the commercials amounts to a thinly veiled threat that noncompliance will be punished. You can't get back to life unless you get the shot, it unapologetically presumes. But it's presented as if any of this might be A matter of personal choice. It's okay to have questions, we're told. It's just not okay to reach any conclusion that involves a decision not to take the jab for any reason. You're free to have reservations about it, of course, as long as those reservations eventually, and hopefully soon, the rest of society's counting on you, become assuaged by the soothing, vague bromides that have been provided by the product manufacturers and their pitchmen. This, like the masks and like the stupid distancing rituals we became accustomed to last year, is just theater. When you sit for the jab, the nurse will likely give you seven pages of warnings and disclosures. Now, maybe, if she's really honest, as one happened to be while giving uh, his brother-in-law the shot, she'll tell you that this list of disclosures is about six pages longer than the typical set of disclosures that accompanies a normal vaccine. Now, sure, you could put on your readers and glance at all those warnings and disclosures for a few minutes as if the information therein might affect your decision to let that nurse plunge the contents of that syringe in your arm. But that's just theater, too. There's nothing in there that's changing your mind. The nurse knows you're going to let her do it, just as you likely know, as he did, and you may not have a job next month if you don't. Over the threat of COVID... And in spite of this virus being miraculously undeadly to children and most healthy individuals, while only threatening a fairly specific demographic in society at any significant level, the government took away our right to go to church, our right to conduct commerce in our communities, our children's right to the education for which we overpay, and even our ability to smile at one another when we pass each other in the grocery store. You ever think of it that way? If you work for the government, do you think, even for a moment, that the same government that did all of that to you would not now do end of everything within and even beyond its newfound power to force you to take these vaccines as a condition of employment? 
If you work in the private sector, are you so naive as to think that this coercion may not be imminently coming for you? In the form of corporate leviathans doing the bidding of the government with whom it now openly shares a bed in order to force you at all costs to unwillingly plunge into your arm the drugs that our government has already bought from these drug companies. They're not interested in our consent and are deeply interested in limiting our access to information. There is no informed consent here. It's just tyranny. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, this is William Sullivan writing for American Thinker. See, this is the kind of stuff that that gets my heart pumping. And I don't feel like I'm special for recognizing this. You know, I I think I was actually pretty slow on the take-up. But I've definitely come to the realization. Every one of us has a decision to make. Now, if your decision was to go ahead and get the vaccine, I'm not going to consider you a failure. Oh, why would you do that? That's the dumbest thing you ever did. If you were acting on your own conscience or you felt it was in your best interest, that's one thing. But I do know personally a number of people who have said, I really felt that I had no choice. I had to do it. I'm still going to fight for, you know, medical freedom. But in order for me to keep doing what I'm doing, to keep providing for my family, I've had to do it. That's the time that we live in. And there are some people who are just, you know, they are just committed. Hell no, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to give my permission. And yeah, I would walk away from my job before I would let myself be pushed into doing something that is not in my best interest or that I did not voluntarily and freely agree to do. But not everybody's in that situation. So let's be kind to each other, but let's recognize the real enemy is not the vaccinated or the unvaccinated. It's those who would deny us the ability to choose and with our own informed consent, make that decision. I want to switch and talk about uh, vaccine passports for just a few moments. This is an article from Helen Andrews, published on the American Conservative. She says, on August 10th, former White House Coronavirus Task Force Senior Advisor Andy Slavitt tweeted something snarky, as is his habit. If people who go out and buy fake vaccine cards get COVID, do they expect someone to put them on a real ventilator? One of his Twitter followers replied, we need a way to track vaccination that isn't on a little handwritten paper card, something that's very hard to, to falsify. You have ideas, contacts, resources, I bet. Make it happen, Andy. To which Andy Slavitt responded, hold on for three and a half weeks and you will see. Now that was two and a half weeks ago. And Helen Andrews says, right now, the vaccine passport system is a patchwork with multiple official and unofficial apps. The New York State and New York City each have their own different apps. The Excelsior Pass and NYC COVID Safe. Fraud is easy in some apps and others just check your claim to be vaccinated against state health records. Many people avoid apps entirely and just take a photo of their vaccination card with their smartphone or carry around a hard copy. A standardized vaccine passport app would clear up these logistical snags. It would be the green light that prompts cities and private businesses currently considering vaccine vaccine mandates to start imposing them. Can you see the danger here? Now, the Biden administration has repeatedly said there will not be a national vaccine mandate or a national vaccine database. 
Jen Psaki said in March, the development of a vaccine passport, or whatever you want to call it, will be driven by the private sector. Even a private sector vaccine passport should be resisted by every possible means. It's the first step on a slippery slope to a social credit system. And the only time it can be stopped is at the very beginning. A vaccine passport system would mean, in practice, scanning a QR code anytime you enter a place where proof of vaccination is required. Restaurants, coffee shops, universities, concert venues, office buildings. Ideally, there would be some way of verifying that the person listed on the passport is the same person who is presenting the QR code. Right now, for example, New York City's vaccine mandate for restaurants requires patrons present both a vaccine passport and matching ID. Now, there are a few places where scanning a QR code every time you enter a building is standard protocol. One of them is Xinjiang. I hope I'm saying this correct. This is in China. Another is Sydney, Australia. And the state of New South Wales earlier this year mandated QR codes be posted at the entrance of every workplace, retail store, restaurant, church, hotel, salon, hospital, pub, and movie theater. Plus taxis and Ubers as well as large outdoor gatherings such as weddings and funerals. Everyone coming in must scan the QR code or sign in manually if they don't have a smartphone. Scanning again to check out is encouraged but not required. Police and private security guards have been posted at grocery store entrances to make sure the mandate is enforced. Fines right now are up to $5,000 for businesses and $1,000 for patrons. Now, right now, the system is being used for contact tracing, and probably it will soon shift seamlessly into a vaccine passport. Premier Gladys Berejiklian last week teased the idea of adding vaccination status to the same official state app that manages QR code check-ins. In other words, making it an all-in-one app. That was part of her announcement that uh, vaccinated Sydney siders would soon be permitted additional freedoms, like an extra hour of outdoor exercise. That sound familiar? Yeah, the system of rewards and penalties is, is very reminiscent of the Chinese social credit system, which, according to secondhand reports, some Australian bureaucrats explicitly cite in private as a model for their country to follow. So what people call China's social credit system is a patchwork, too. There are the official government blacklists targeting fraud, non-payment of debts, traffic violations, and other antisocial behavior. Now, these are mostly regional, though it's expected that these local pilot programs will be knitted into a single national system eventually. Penalties include being banned from air or train travel or having your children excluded from elite schools. Now, more intrusive and less subject to rule of law protections are the social credit systems of private companies like Alibaba and WeChat. These take into account social media behavior, purchase history, don't buy too many video games, even friendship networks. Spend too much time around people with low Sesame Credit scores, and Alipay will lower your score too. Rewards and penalties are confined to each company's ecosystem, at least for now. The private systems are also expected to be integrated into a national social credit system eventually. But since apps like WeChat manage everything from users' messaging to banking, government services, and healthcare, their power to manipulate incentives might be even greater than the government's. Holy cow! 
The most important thing to understand about China's social credit system is that it's popular. A 2018 poll by the Free University of Berlin found that 80% of respondents had a favorable view of the social credit system, with wealthier and more educated users the most in favor. Now, it's easy to imagine a vaccine passport system in the U.S. morphing into something similar to the Chinese model and being equally popular among the wealthy and educated, especially if at first it was confined to coronavirus-specific measures. Get caught taking your mask off indoors? That's a two-week hold on your restaurant privileges. Your church had more than the permitted number of unmasked singers? Well, that church is restricted to video streaming services for the next three months. Now, there are plenty of people who would consider such measures dystopian, but who have no problem with a bare-bones vaccine passport. What those people have to understand is this. Once Americans get used to scanning a QR code every time they go into a building, there is no way to arrest that trajectory at the specific point you prefer. We've seen how easily decision-makers are captured by the most deranged COVID hawks. The same forces that just led to an outdoor mask mandate in Oregon in the face of all scientific evidence will be brought to bear on any vaccine passport. It will be a never-ending ratchet. At the start of the pandemic, on May 11, 2020, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington announced that to reopen for indoor dining, restaurants would be required to keep a record of the names and contact details of every person who came in for purposes of contact tracing. That was a Monday. By Friday, he had retracted the rule in the face of mass outrage. People didn't like the idea of it being a matter of record who they had dinner with. Politicians and bureaucrats are vulnerable to this kind of pushback. If uptake of the passport app is low or if enough people turn around and walk out the door every time their local coffee shop asks to see their QR code, then after a month or two, this app's supporters will be forced to backtrack just as Inslee did. But there's a limited window of time when this kind of protest can make a difference. Helen Andrews says, People like Andy Slavitt are betting most Americans will say, Oh, well, as long as it's the private business's decision, or I guess it's fine if it helps us get back to normal. But even opponents might download the app grudgingly, hoping it'll be temporary, just to put an end to mask mandates and other annoyances. People are more exhausted and desperate now than they were when Inslee floated his trial balloon. If a gold standard vaccine passport app is indeed imminent, then people should start thinking a step ahead. If the eventual result of a social credit system sounds dystopian to you, then now is the time to resist. If we learned anything from COVID, it's that restrictions tend to stick around once they're imposed. And the promised back to normal, well, it's always just around the corner. I can't think of truer words that I have read today. Why is it such a hard sell to get people to stand up and say no? So Helen Andrews is a senior editor for the American Conservative. I I love this article from her, Say No to Vaccine Passports. I'm going to dig down and go one one step further and just tell you that the biggest problem that I have with vaccine passports is it would establish, it would absolutely codify a segregated society. 
and I'm not trying to be all social justice warrior. We all know that Jim Crow and segregation is the worst thing next to slavery that ever happened. It was ugly. But remember, it was also the law. You had to provide extra facilities, you know, separate facilities for colored people. We look back on that now and we think, why were we treating people like, like they were dogs? Why did we why did they make, make them use a separate restroom? They're not good enough to use our restroom. Drink from a separate fountain. Sit in a separate place of the lunch counter. Sit at the back of the bus. It seems pretty petty from where we are today, but it's the exact same thing that is being proposed and being put into place, albeit skin color is no longer the main consideration. Though for those who are really obsessed with skin color and race-related things, you should probably note the minority communities are going to be hit disproportionately hard by this segregation. I've heard the term, and I don't disapprove of it. It's it's a kind of medical apartheid. A second-class citizenship. And I just have to ask, why would we put our weight behind that? Why would we say, hey, this is a good idea. We ought to support this. This ought to, this ought to be the norm. I guess for some people, it's the thought that, well, it's not going to affect me. You know, I, I, I'm okay. I got vaccinated. I'm, I'm okay. It's just a question of when, when do you start to recognize you're giving up things that you're not going to get back? At least not without uh, being willing to, to struggle for them. I know. This, are you trying to call us to be troublemakers? Well, not really. <laughs> but I can tell you this. If you're going to stand up for anything, if you are going to make a stand for what you believe is right, you're going to be called a troublemaker. There is no way you can do it. There's no way you can avoid it. So maybe the best thing to do is just accept it. Troublemaker is in the eye of the beholder. Look at what's happening right now with parents who show up to these school board meetings and say, I don't want my kid being placed under a mask mandate. Now, I'll grant you, some of them come in there with signs and some of them are chanting and some people, you know, kind of prefer the hey, hey, ho, ho, you know, way to get their message across. I'm not saying I think it's the best or most persuasive way, but if they're rowdy, it's not the same thing as, oh, yeah, and they're burning down businesses and dragging people out of their cars and beating them. We've seen people who do that, but for some reason that gets a pass. I'm talking about parents just standing up and saying, no, I don't want you imposing this on my kid. You work for me. But to hear the press report on it, those parents, well, this is just a bunch of angry, disruptive, you know, out of control parents. How dare they question those who know better than them? How dare they push back against people who are much smarter and make more money than them? No, really, that's how some people look at this. I'm not going to suggest that uh, you should only, you know, walk in quietly with your hat in your hand. Yes, sir. No, sir. You know, and, uh, you know, be be so uh, abasing of yourself in front of someone in authority. But I also think if you immediately go on the attack, you're probably doing yourself and your side a disservice. Legislators even though some of them start to get a little full of themselves and, you know, believe their press releases, are people. 
And there are times that they will make mistakes. There are times that they're going to, you know, embrace bad information. That's when you and I have to be the kind of individuals that they would know and trust if we were to step forward and say, there's a side to this that I don't think you're seeing or that you may not have considered. See how different that is from, you want to kill kids and, you know... (laughs) I don't doubt the intensity and I don't doubt the frustration, especially when you have arrogance on the part of leaders who don't really want to be told. But I also believe that if you're going to make your voice heard, you should use the highest means possible. You should take the high road and not take the low road because it's always going to be used against you. The press is hostile to people pushing back against these these COVID pronouncements. Of course, they're going to take the side of whoever is in authority. Don't give them any ammunition that they can then turn and use against you. And I know this is a tough suggestion, but uh, if it's really that bad, if you feel that, uh, you know, I can't get the, the school board to listen to me, the school district is just, you know, they're turning a deaf ear to my complaints, as hard as it may be, maybe it's time to consider pulling your kids out of that system. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, the state is still going to take tax money and pay for that system, whether you like it or not. Sorry, can't change that. But parents who take that longer-term approach are probably going to be more likely to pull their kids out of a situation where they realize, you know what, these these teachers or these this system is going to turn my kid into one of those people who complies. Second nature, I don't ask questions, I just do what I'm told to do because someone in authority said to do it. I'm glad to know that homeschooling is experiencing a resurgence that uh, it's never seen something like this before. From single digits of Americans participating in homeschooling into the double digits. Depending on the community, 10, 13, 15% participation in homeschooling. What a huge shift. But, of course, that still means a lot of those students are still there in the public school system. And not every school system, you know, some of them are actually very reasonable and responsive to the people that they're trying to serve. I wouldn't say yank your kid out to teach them a lesson. But others that turn a deaf ear that are totally enthralled to teachers' unions or other special interests or they would rather spend more time teaching your kids how to become little revolutionaries than to actually teach them useful information? I'm thinking I would do anything in my power to help a parent who was trying to get their kid out of that situation. Because I think the likelihood of them turning out a well-adjusted, productive member of society is far higher than those that just shrug and say, well, what can we do? We need the child care. This outsourcing of child care to government in the form of government schools is going to come back and bite us in a huge way. It already is. Sometimes tough decisions have to be made. Sometimes you've got to be willing to make serious sacrifice. Now, I can hear you say, well, no, Brian, have you had to do that? Look, I have homeschooled, private schooled, charter schooled, and public schooled all of my kids. My wife is a public school teacher. She's actually one of the good ones that you would want on the inside of such a system. But I wouldn't pretend that it's a one-size-fits-all proposition. 
And those people who feel like this is just antithetical to our values and we got to get our kids out of there, I think they are 100% within their rights because the stewardship that they have in raising those kids is between them and God, not the state that they live in. I'm thinking that they need to be the kind of people who can be counted on to do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing to do. Actually, I think that's true of all of us. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.